Hello, everyone. This is WCG Patient Radio. Thank you for tuning in to our podcast today. I'm Steve Smith, President of Patient Advocacy at WCG, here with our special guest, Dr. David Begenbaum. WCG is a company with a 50-year legacy of ethical review of the treatment of people participating in clinical trials and has many clinical services and technologies focused on speed, efficiency, safety, and reduced patient burden in the development of new medicines for unmet medical needs. You can find our other podcasts by searching for the, the WIRB, that's W-I-R-B, WIRB Copernicus Group in any of the major podcast players such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or Google Play. Today, we're speaking with Dr. David Fagenbaum, who leads the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network and the Castleman Disease Center at the University of Pennsylvania. He is Assistant Professor of Medicine at the University of Pennsylvania, Translational Medicine and Human Genetics, Associate Director, Patient Impact, Orphan Disease Center at the University of Pennsylvania, and he's the co-founder and executive director of the Castleman's Disease Collaborative Network. He recently came out with a book about his story called Chasing My Cure, A Doctor's Race to Turn Hope into Action. Good morning, David. Good morning. Thanks so much for having me on your show. David, Dr. Fagenbaum, that is. A great read. That book of yours is so fantastic, and I actually think it's definitely a potential movie. No kidding. I think people who read it would agree. It's about you and your amazing family and the medical professionals and others that you collaborated with to find a treatment for a very serious disease. But you tell the story so well. There are places that are gut-wrenchingly emotional as we consider your family and people's ambitions, all the people who have disease and the disease itself. But there are also parts of the book that are hilarious as you provide anecdotes and insight into yourself and those around you, including some of your vulnerabilities and mistakes and even the story about the first time your wife laid eyes on you. Just a wonderful, wonderful story, the way it's woven together. And it's very informative for medicine and science as well. Oh, so thank you so much. The most amazing part of it. Yes, yes, you're welcome. I mean, it's my pleasure. The, the most amazing part is this is a true story, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, sometimes it, it's kind of, for me, it, it feels like a bit of a, a dream or, or a nightmare to think about some of the places that, that I've been with my health and that my family has gone through, but but I guess it's starting to feel like a dream these days. So I'm really glad that you're here to, to tell us more about that. I, I just have to also say, by so people who don't know you yet understand something that really amazes me is you have a Bachelor of Science degree from Georgetown, right? Mm-hmm. And then you have an MBA from the Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania, and your medical degree, your MD, is from U- University of Pen- Pennsylvania. And those things alone are impressive. They're very time-consuming and all-absorbing for people that do that, get that kind of education. And um, you, as if that's not time-consuming enough, I find it amazing what else happened in your life as you were completing that education and starting your career in medicine, that all these things happened that I think would have knocked a lot of people right off the rails. And and here you are with the um, running the Castleman's disease and at the University of Pennsylvania. So um, what inspired your journey into medicine? I, from, from a young age, I was um, always uh, very interested in health and wellness. Um, diet, exercise um, w- was always something that I was very interested in. I played uh, football growing up and dreamed of playing college football one day. And um, 
so I always had a, maybe a lean towards thinking about maybe going into to sports medicine or, or medicine in some way. Um, and then uh, shortly after I got to college at Georgetown, uh, my mom was diagnosed with a, a very uh, deadly form of brain cancer. And really, my whole life was turned upside down. And um, watching her battle with cancer and her um, incredible physicians working to help her and thinking about the progress and the importance of research and helping patients like my mom, um, I personally uh, had, a, had a major shift where I, I went from just being somewhat interested in health and wellness to, to being um, laser focused on, on wanting to become a doctor to treat patients like my mom and to help cancer patients um, so that they wouldn't go through um, the challenges my mom went through. She ended up passing away 15 months after her diagnosis and watching her battle and the courage she battled, her cancer um, has served as such just an incredible inspiration to me as I've battled my own personal challenges. And she just um, was, was the most incredible role model and, and person um, that, that I've ever interacted with. Yeah, you, you paint a picture of your time with your mother in a way that is, uh, I think we all connect to. and. Um, Really, also then speaks to the, the the loss and your your response to it, and um, the I guess the drive you had to do something um, really um, makes this story incredible, and the, and the results of what you've done. You were diagnosed with Castleman's disease while in the midst of a very demanding time in your medical education and early career development. What was going on in your life then, and how did Castleman's disease enter your life? So I finished undergrad, I, I went to graduate school and then medical school, and um, I was a third-year med student here at the University of Pennsylvania where I was training to become an oncologist in memory of my mom, and um, everything was kind of coming together the way that I had, had hoped it would. And um, uh, then kind of out of nowhere, as a third-year medical student, while I was actually finally in the clinics treating patients, I started experiencing fatigue and weight loss, I had abdominal pain, I noticed lumps in my neck, fluid accumulating around my ankles, just really strange symptoms. And I didn't know what it was, but over the course of just a, a few days, really just a week, um, I went from being totally healthy to feeling deathly ill. I actually even told my roommates I thought I was dying. And, and I'm not a, a very dramatic person. I'm not a hypochondriac. So it was very unusual for, for me to say something like that. Um, but by the end of that week, I went from a medical school exam that I took. I went down the hall to the emergency department at, at UPenn and the doctors did blood work and they said, David, your liver, your kidneys, and your bone marrow are all shutting down. We need to hospitalize you right away. And when they hospitalized me, I, I really deteriorated rapidly. I had a retinal hemorrhage and went blind in my left eye. I gained 70 pounds of fluid. I was so sick that I was drifting in and out of consciousness. And the doctors told my family to say their goodbyes. And so in November of 2010, at 25 years old, a priest came into my room to administer my last rites to me, all without a diagnosis. Everyone thought I wasn't going to survive. Um, fortunately, right around that time, a diagnosis was made. Um, the procedure to diagnose Castleman disease was performed, and um, and we finally had a name for that thing that was killing me for weeks. Um, and with a name, um, began, began treatment. And so at the time, very little was known about Castleman disease. It's still quite poorly understood, but what was known was that Castleman disease um, 
acts in some ways like a cancer and some ways like an autoimmune disease. And so since it's so poorly understood, chemotherapy is really the mainstay of treatment. So I was given chemotherapy and that saved my life. I, I was able to, to, to survive that episode thanks to chemotherapy. But unfortunately, I would go on to have a number of relapses and even a relapse just a few weeks later put me back in the hospital um, with multiple organ failure again. And um, to kind of imagine what it looks like, it looked, uh, a patient like myself, um, if you've ever seen a patient with stage four cancer or maybe um, someone who is in septic shock, that's really what this disease looks like and how it manifests. But unfortunately, very little is known about how and why that happens. And this diagnosis, um, was it, is, is diagnosis of Castleman's disease something that's straightforward now? And was it straightforward forward then, like just a matter of waiting for a test? Or was it a complex thing to okay. diagnose? A great question. It's changed a lot. So back in 2010, when I was diagnosed, there were no diagnostic criteria. So the only way you could diagnose it is if you had a physician who knew of the disease and had read medical articles about the disease. So they knew what, um, what to look for. Um, but there was no checklist. There was no criteria for how to diagnose it. And so um, uh, as, as I continue to battle this disease, I actually um, decided to dedicate my life um, to trying to cure the disease. And one of the first steps I took was um, bringing together a community of physicians, researchers, and patients to establish the first ever diagnostic criteria. So whereas it took me 11 weeks to get diagnosed, and if it had taken 11 weeks and two days, I probably would not have survived. Now patients are getting diagnosed with just, with just a few days uh, of showing up at the hospital because there's finally a checklist. And of course, that's not the case for everyone. There certainly are patients um, where it takes a while to diagnose them because we need to raise more awareness for the disease, but generally, um, it's a very different um, diagnostic journey these days. Well, that's an incredible um, step right there that you get that got that diagnosis time shortened, and you did it. You did it through collaboration. Can you say something about the the importance of collaboration? I know that you talk about that in your book and how that comes together. Absolutely. For for more common diseases. Um, Collaboration is important, but it's not always essential because you might have enough researchers and enough doctors and enough patients at any one institution. But when you're talking about a rare disease, collaboration is essential because no one institution has enough patients or enough researchers or physicians to be able to figure it out on their own. You have to collaborate across institutions, and in our case, across the world, to identify the patients to study. There are about 5,000 patients diagnosed each year with Castleman disease. So it's about as common as ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, but obviously has much less awareness that has been raised for it. So it's a rare disease, but it's not that rare, and, and we still have a lot of work that needs to be done. So for, for most rare diseases, there are few or no treatment options. In fact, for most, it's, it's true that there are no treatment options. That's right. Only a, about roughly 500 out of 7,000 classified rare diseases have an FDA-approved treatment of any kind, so most of them don't. So what's it like to learn, as a, as a patient that you were, that there are no FDA-approved therapies? Oh, it was frightening. Um, so, to, you know, it was scary to, to not know what disease I had. And, you know, there were the, un, the unknown was scary. Um, and then to find out what I had um, gave me some relief. But then it was then scary to hear that there were no FDA-approved drugs. 
fortunately, around the time that I um, was diagnosed, there was a drug undergoing a clinical trial, a drug called siltuximab, that I was very hopeful um, would maybe be the drug that would keep me in remission and it would treat my disease. Um, I, I got it when I had a, a major relapse um, in the midst of a seven-week hospitalization. Um, and unfortunately, it didn't work during my relapse, but I got chemotherapy, a combination of seven different chemotherapies got my disease into remission. But I was hopeful that maybe even if this drug didn't get me into remission, maybe it could prevent a relapse. And so I remained on this experimental drug. And then about a year later, I relapsed on that drug. And so it was maybe even scarier, for, even more scary at this stage to go from you know there being one experimental drug to all of a sudden realizing that the only drug in development, the only drug where there's any research being done for my disease did not work. And I had a conversation with my doctor where I asked, you know, what else is coming down the pipeline? What other promising leads are there? And he explained to me that, that no one knows and that, that there were no more drugs coming down the pipeline. And um, for me, that was a, a major turning point in my life. I, I, when I think about my, my life thus far, I think the first major turning point was, was my mom's diagnosis. And that just kind of turned my whole world upside down. Um, her passing really shook, shook me to my core. Um, the next really critical moment in my life, even, even more so than the diagnosis with Castleman's and my, having my last rites read to me, but I think a really the next most critical moment in my life was learning that there was no more research being done there was no reason to be hopeful, and there were no options coming down the pipeline. And, and that's when I, I realized that I needed to stop hoping and praying that someone somewhere would figure out my disease, and that if I was hoping for it, and if I was praying for a treatment and a cure, that I would need to take action, and I would need to turn my hope into action. So I turned to my, my dad, my sisters, and my girlfriend, Caitlin, and I promised them that I would dedicate the rest of my life, however long that may be, to trying to identify a treatment or a cure for this disease. And, and trust me, I, I didn't think that I was going to find anything. I, I hoped that I would find something that could help maybe someone else, but I certainly didn't think I could find something that would help me in, in time um, to save my life. But I wanted to go out swinging. I knew that I knew that if I didn't try, there was a 0% chance. And I knew if I did try, maybe there was a 1% chance, um, but that was better than 0%. And so I decided to dedicate my life to trying to fight back against this disease. Yeah, yeah. so a lot of patients do have hope in the clinical trials they join because they they know that maybe the only drug out there where hope is um, there's a potential for something to work. And then if it doesn't, it, it can be um, quite devastating. And um, I know you mentioned um, Santa Claus in your book, the concept of hoping Santa Claus will bring you some kind of um, something to save you. Yeah. But in fact, you had to really save yourself. And tell us what you did next and something about the scientific discovery or the breakthrough that um, actually started to work that you found. Sure. So, so my book and really is a treatment is a or a cure. Sure, absolutely. So my book's really a book about hope. You used the, the word hope earlier, and, and I've used the word hope a few times already. Um, hope can be really powerful when it um, when you see someone doing well with your disease and you can believe that you can be there. That can help you to fight in the midst of tough times. Um, but hope can actually also sometimes get in the way of action. Um, 
hoping that someone somewhere will figure out your disease, or in my case, um, what I describe in the book as the the Santa Claus theory of civilization, and that's that there's sometimes sometimes we have this sense, and I certainly was guilty of it myself, that there must be some team of people out there working diligently to solve problems, and that they, you know, if anything that you could be facing for your your health or someone you love or, or even outside of health, there most certainly must be groups of people working to solve these problems. And I think Google can sometimes um, perpetuate this this concept because it seems like any question you put into Google, you can get an answer or you can learn about someone somewhere working on an answer. Um, and I think the news also perpetuates it because you hear headlines about breakthroughs. You don't you don't see headlines that say 10 million experiments today did not lead to a single breakthrough. Um, which is actually, you know, the norm. Um, lots and lots of things are happening that are not leading to breakthroughs. And unfortunately for a lot of diseases, no work is being done. And for me, um, I, I didn't appreciate that or didn't realize that until I, I dove into this rare disease world. And so as I dove into it, I learned that, um, you know, for a lot of diseases, like you said, a lot of most rare diseases do not have a single drug that is approved, and many don't have any drugs in development. And so you can really feel alone. And, and for me, I mentioned that I, I made this promise. Chemotherapy saved my life for the fourth time, thankfully. When I got out of the hospital, I decided to create a foundation called the Castleman Disease Collaborative Network to try to accelerate research on a global scale and also to begin conducting laboratory research here at the University of Pennsylvania. No one was studying Castleman disease here, but a colleague of mine provided me some laboratory space so I could start performing experiments on my own samples. And through this foundation and through the research I was doing at Penn, we were starting to make some real progress. It was it was iterative, but it was real. Um, and then unfortunately, about a year later, in the midst of us building this organization and conducting research, I relapsed again. Um, this time it was on, I was getting weekly chemotherapy to try to prevent a relapse, and I still relapsed. Um, I was completely out of options, and I was just devastated and terrified about if I would be able to make it to my, my fiance and I's wedding date. Uh, Caitlin and I had gotten engaged just a few months before that I died, nearly died for the fifth time, and we had hoped so badly to be able to make it to May 24th of 2014. And so when I relapsed and I was back in the hospital in critical condition, we were terrified. Would I actually be able to, to make it? Fortunately, chemotherapy saved my life again after weeks in the hospital. Um, but this time, I knew that if I wanted to make it to our wedding date, I would need to be able, I would need to be able to find a treatment that could keep me alive and keep me in remission. And so I dove into the data that I'd been generating in the lab. I I pulled out samples I'd been collecting on myself and I and I really dug into trying to identify something that could help me. And over the course of several weeks, I was able to identify a signal from within the data that suggested to me that a drug that was developed 25 years ago and had never been used before for Castleman disease might actually be effective in treating my disease. It's called serolimus, is developed for kidney transplantation, um, and without any other options, and, and not necessarily knowing whether it would actually work or not, we decided to try me on it as the first patient ever with Castleman disease, and, and thankfully, I was able to make it to our wedding day. We, we were able to get married on May 24th, 2014, and 
this drug has kept me in remission ever since. It's been almost six years now um, that I've been in remission. And typically, I, I don't say almost six years because I, I usually say exactly how many years and how many months because I know that I can't round up. I don't know um, if I'll relapse tomorrow, and I don't know if I'll make it to six years. Um, but I also don't like to round down um, because, you know, we've worked really, really hard for, for every part of this remission for myself. Yes, so that's amazing, and it sounds like it's an example of what we in the rare disease world refer to as repurposing a drug that was developed right. for different reasons. And there are so many um, medications out there, some of which are approved for other reasons, but are um, not available to patients with rare diseases because nobody's tried them, or the additional trial hasn't been done. That's right. Or they've been kind of put in, on the shelf for a while. But fortunately, in your case, you found that one. That's right. There are about 1,500 drugs that are currently FDA approved, and they're approved for about 2,500 diseases. But as you said earlier, there are about 6,500 diseases, maybe over 7,000 actually, that do not have a single FDA approved drug. And so a lot of a lot of the reason that I wanted to write this book, Chasing My Cure, is that I want to raise awareness about the fact that sometimes these drugs that were developed for one thing can be repurposed and can be life-saving for another disease. But unfortunately, we haven't done the testing for a lot of these diseases. And unfortunately, there are not always incentives in place to be able to do these really large and expensive clinical trials to test every possible drug for every possible disease. And so I really hope um, that Chasing My Cure, which came out a couple months ago and has been able to raise some, some awareness for Castleman disease, I hope it also is able to raise awareness for this, this concept of drug repurposing. Yes, we've. I, I know from my uh, advocacy on, with rare disease patients on Capitol Hill, we've had a, a proposed piece of legislation that isn't passed, but it's it's about it's the Open Act, and we want them yes. to incent companies to um, it's open it's orphan products extensions now, basically incenting companies to take those products off the shelf and do the additional trial for the rare indications rather than just leave them there on the shelf. Absolutely, and, I think and it's, it's so important. You're also talking about the importance of data analysis, where you looked hard into the data and then you looked at yep. some, you know, that the retrospective data. Where you can look back and say, hey, you know, this other drug existed for this other reason. And there's a lot more that can be done today because of the way data is collected and analyzed. We're starting to see some other breakthroughs too, where companies will t look at a bigger, wider data set and look back into the past more. And um, so there is. There are developments that are emerging which may help us get things done uh, that we didn't used to be able to do. That's exactly right. We I shared my story of how I'm on this drug and it's helping me, um, but this is just one small part of the larger effort against Castleman disease. We have about we have 17 other studies um, ongoing that are trying to understand what's going on in Castleman disease. How do we better treat it? How do we save patients' lives? We know that this drug that's helping me can help some other patients. We also know a number of patients have received this drug and it has not helped them. So it reminds us of the importance of, of generating more data, of utilizing more data, more samples to better understand this disease. So I, I could not agree with you more that we need to utilize all the past data. We also need to, to use the samples that we have available to us to generate new data um, and to keep pushing forward our understanding and treatment for rare diseases. So, so what is underway at the research organization you're leading at University of Pennsylvania? And the um, the Castleman's community in general, and our, our new I'm guessing new Castleman's patients are 
um, presenting themselves as you know all the time. Exactly. So right now we are really focused on pushing forward research and treatment for Castleman disease. I mentioned we have a, a number of studies that are currently underway, and, and really it's with the goal of understanding why does this happen? Why does the immune system attack the body's vital organs the way that it does in Castleman disease? It's called idiopathic multicenter Castleman disease because we don't know what causes it. So we want to understand the cause. We understand how to better treat it. We also want to understand Castleman disease is so interesting because it sits at the intersection of cancer and autoimmunity. There's features that are cancer-like and autoimmune-like. And so we, as a research program, are very interested in understanding that intersection and how maybe insights into Castleman disease can have really important insights and maybe even therapeutic implications for cancers and also for autoimmune diseases. So we're really interested in these diseases right at that intersection. We want to continue to push forward the science for them. We also are really interested in, in trying to share the model that we've taken for how we've advanced research for Castleman disease. We've actually taken a quite different approach to research as opposed to raising money and hoping the right researcher applies for the right project at the right time. We've actually built a large community of physicians, patients, researchers, loved ones, used the community to prioritize what research should be done, and then gone outside of the community to identify the best researchers in the world to do our studies. So it gets us away from a kind of insular reactive model towards this really open and, and proactive model of identifying the right studies and then the right people um, to do those studies. So we really are, are trying to share um, th this model worldwide. Yeah, that, that's so important and, and not, not something you find around every corner, that proactivity and has to happen in a in an environment where just just enough enough um, steps are not being taken for so many diseases. That's exactly right. I want to ask you to talk a little bit about the personal side of your life that you you talk about so well in the book that makes this an incredibly awesome read. And there's a, a Caitlin you've mentioned is your wife, and in the story you also talk about you know when she first laid on eyes on you and. Um, how you you and she you know were dating and then eventually engaged and and so forth and in the midst of those things you were also quite occupied with your studies but also then eventually your disease tell us a little bit about that that's right it's been um, such a journey um, for for Caitlin and I um, uh, you know no one deals with disease in isolation everyone who has a disease um, their loved ones battle that disease along with them. And so Caitlin has just been the most incredible supporter for me um, in going from, as you said, a totally healthy college athlete, medical student, um, to then, you know, being this uh, terminally ill patient. Um, and then transitioning from a terminal patient to a scientist, and, and she's been so supportive throughout. For for Caitlin and I, we, um, we, we actually broke up just a few months before I first got ill, and we both had this general sense that, like, you know, if it's meant to be, it's, it'll, 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 we'll get back together. And, you know, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. And, and, you know, we have all the time in the world, you know, we're 25 years old. If, if, you know, it's okay if we're broken up now, we'll get back together in, in the future if, if it's, if it's meant to work out. Um, and then all of a sudden I became deathly ill. And for both of us that I think crystallized that we, we actually don't have all the time in the world and that um, because we care so much about one another, we, we do need to fight for one another and we do need to, to make one another a priority now. And um, 
as, as you said, um, she was with me through all of these ups and downs, in and out of the hospital, having my last rights read to me, um, having to, to write out a makeshift will from the ICU. Um, and, and Caitlin never left my side. And uh, amazingly, um, throughout all this, you know, write, writing the book actually um, gave us the first opportunity to actually revisit a lot of these really hard memories. We've we stored them away in deep parts of our brain and never really wanted to bring them back up. But but writing the book really required uh, us to, to to pull these memories out and to talk about them. And it, and it certainly was not easy um, to, to relive um, what it was like uh, to have her watch me so sick in the hospital and not know um, if I would make it and, and to not know if we would make it to our wedding day. Um, but throughout it all, she um, has just been so supportive to me. And we've had this, you know, amazing gift uh, just 15 months ago when, when we had our first daughter, Amelia. Uh, Amelia um, has brought us so much joy. And as I think back about all that um, I thought about when I was in the hospital, I, I remember that I grieved that I would never be able to have a family with Caitlin and that I would never be able to, to be a parent. That was something that was really on my mind uh, as I thought I was you know, going to die in the next couple of days. Um, and to now be able to have um, this just incredible daughter who's so sweet, um, she's 15 months old now, uh, and to know that the work that, that I did and that so many people enabled by supporting Castleman Disease Research, that their donations enabled me to survive, which enabled me to, um, to be able to bring Amelia into the world um, is just, uh, or for me and Caitlin to bring Amelia into the world, it, um, it just means so much to me. Yes, I saw a picture recently of you and Caitlin and <clears throat> with the baby, and it's uh, yeah. it's just such an adorable picture because all three of you are so good looking and you look so happy. <laughs> and in you. some ways, that's a typical family photo. However, um, when one knows the background, it's just an incredible photo that that moment even came to be, and that there are you all three are <clears throat> smiling so big. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Really something. You're absolutely right. This is you the deep one, impact of your. Yeah, one, it's that we're physically, the three of us are physically there. The fact that I survived, that Caitlin stood by my side, that Amelia is here, that is a, a miracle in itself. That I have hair, that I'm not bald from chemotherapy is another part. The fact that, you know, I, I look and feel so well is, is another miracle. It's, um, uh, and again, uh, it, it's, it's all thanks to the hard work that so many people have invested, the donations that people have made towards Castleman's research, the the sacrifices that scientists have made towards better understanding the disease and, and the work, frankly, that, that my family and, and my colleagues here at Penn have put in to better understanding and better treating this disease so that it doesn't just help me, but so that it helps thousands of other patients with this disease. The, the book's called Chasing My Cure, but I think it should probably be called Chasing Our Cures because it really has been about chasing cures for so many people with so many people um, by our side. Yes, absolutely. And those personal touches that you, you put into the story are not only a great read and they're, they're super romantic and they're inspiring, but this is also informative to other people who may be going through this. And as hard as it was for you and Caitlin to bring those uh, topics back out to create the book, other people benefit from seeing that they're not alone and that life um, sometimes has this in it. But yeah, you, you, all those th those lessons that you learned along the way that you convey to us in the book about 
the immediacy of taking advantage of things now and not giving up and so forth. It's really amazing. Oh, thank you. Uh, can we um, <clears throat> circle back and talk a little bit about your, your mother and your father? Your father was at your bedside a lot, and he's also a doctor, I believe, in the same mm -hmm. hospital, and your um, your mother's influence. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. They they influenced me so much, just like so many uh parents influence their children. My mom taught me so much during her life before she ever became ill about um, how to live a purposeful life and how to, to be there for those that you love. Um, but it really was in her illness that, that I think maybe I learned the most from her. And it was the way that she faced illness and the way that she fought against cancer so graciously that that really served as a blueprint uh, and a guidepost for me as I, as I have been dealing with my own illness, there's a, a quick anecdote that I'll share from um, just after her, her brain surgery was done to take out this really awful form of cancer. And I had just gone to college, and so I, I flew back to, to be there for when the surgery was over. It was about a four-and-a-half-hour surgery, and my dad, sisters, and I uh, went back to see her. And we were so worried about it. That would be our mom on the other side of the curtain. If 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 it would still if one if she would make it and two if she, it would still be her. And I remember they pulled back the curtain and we were just so scared, um, you know, about what we would learn. And uh, my mom's head was was wrapped in a bandage, and she had a bulb coming out of her skull from where fluid was being drained from the surgery. And we were just so scared. And um, her head was shaven. And she had this, this wrap on. And she looked at us and she pointed to her head and she said, Chiquita Banana Lady. <laughs> and we just burst into laughter, you know, in the midst of after a four and a half hour brain surgery with cancer literally growing in her brain, she decided to make a joke um, to our family. So that way we could laugh and we could laugh with her. And that served as such an important reminder for me about how when we deal with life's challenges and when we're with the people that we love, that sometimes just little comments like that, things that can make us laugh together, um, can be so important and, and how important humor can be in the midst of, of really, really challenging times. And that's something that, that I, I that's one of the, the dozens of things that my mom taught me. And, and my dad throughout, throughout my life has, has, has always been such a reminder to me of the importance of hard work and the impact that we can have on people through his career in medicine and, and also, um, through his support of our family. And so I think, I feel very fortunate that I was able to have both of them as my parents. My dad continues to support me, and my mom continues to inspire me just from the memories that she left uh, before her passing. I remember you mentioned um, she um, helped you develop your football skills, which were <laughs> considerable, um, by letting you pass footballs to her. And then at some point, you had to stop. That's right. That's right. At some so point, you were I was... throwing the football so hard she couldn't catch it anymore. That's right. right, but she um but we we figured out this this uh system behind my house where I would throw the football at targets um and and then she it was a targets on a hill and then she would roll the ball back down the hill and then I would throw the football at the next target and um it was a way that that we could both be out there together um and that she could she could help me and show her support. Well, th this is just an uh, amazing um the all this has transpired and 
Um, I wish you just the absolute best for your research and all the things it can do for other people. <clears throat> and could you tell us, for people who are listening and interested, um, how somebody could donate to the Castleman's Collaborative Network? Sure. So anyone who would like to donate can go to cdcn.org uh, to donate towards life-saving research for Castleman disease. You can also help to raise awareness about Castleman disease by checking out Chasing My Cure and maybe gifting it to someone who's been inspiring to you um, to teach them about this, this illness uh, through reading the story, but also to hopefully inspire them. I, I wrote this book because I learned so much about life and about living from nearly dying five times and fighting back. Lessons that I wish I didn't have to go through all that I went through to learn, but lessons that um, I hope that others, um, like listeners on this call and maybe friends of listeners, um, can learn uh, without having to go through all the things that I did. And so I would just be so thankful um, for any donations towards Castleman's research so we can keep moving forward the science, um, but also for your helping to spread the word about Chasing My Cure. Great, great. So um, for those of you that want to hear it again, it, it's the Castleman's Disease Collaborative Network. So you can cdcn.org. That's right. And then the book is, we're speaking with Dr. David Fagenbaum today, and the book is Chasing My Cure. It's available on all the book websites. It's by uh, uh, Penguin Books, isn't it? That's right. And and, and even and, your, um, your local yeah. bookstores, it's available everywhere books are sold. Yes, yes. So I think anybody who uh, <clears throat> gives it is going to get a big thank you from those who read it. Thank you very much, uh, David. Dr. Fagenbaum, uh, best of luck to you and greetings to Caitlin and your family. And thank you for talking with us today. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much for all that you do to engage and to promote patient engagement. Thank you. And thanks for tuning in, everybody. This is Steve Smith, President of Patient Advocacy, and this is WCG Patient Radio. <laughs>